Heavenly Father, I pray that over these next few moments that you would begin to open up our hearts so that we can begin to examine your word in a truth that only you can reveal to us. As we begin to approach the subject of the difficult doctrine of hell, I recognize today that we're going to be examining portions of your word that are difficult for us to think about and certainly difficult to comprehend, but with the help of your Holy Spirit, not only will we comprehend them, but we will escape it by your grace. This we pray in Jesus' name, and everyone said amen. This is the third week in a series where we have been talking about what is beyond this life. What is eternity like? What awaits those following our rapture from this earth or our death? About 30 years ago, my wife and I were staff pastors in Long Island, New York, where we were renting a one-bedroom house from my wife's great-aunt and uncle. Our uncle's name was Ted, and Ted was a rather staunch and outspoken atheist who used to enjoy poking fun at me, wasting my talents and abilities teaching people about the fairy tale of Jesus and his plan of salvation. Now, Ted wasn't a mean guy. In fact, he was very caring, loved our children a lot, very likable, generous, about a lot of subject. He was brilliant. Uncle Ted also suffered from the effects of diabetes and He would never let us pray for him. He would never let us lay hands and pray for him because he said it doesn't matter. There is no God, so it would be a waste of your speech and time. When diabetes began to get a hold of his body and he began to grow septic and we recognized that it was obvious that his life on earth was growing to a close, I went to the hospital to visit him. And in that time, in those final hours, I reminded him, I said, you know, you're not going to be here long. And he said, Doug, I know that. And he says, but even if at the time of my death I suddenly would have a change of heart and believe in the existence of God and believe that there was salvation through Jesus Christ, he said, I still wouldn't change now because I've come too far on this path to suddenly turn around. Hours later, Uncle Ted died, and that was the hardest funeral I have ever done. Admittedly, hell is an unpleasant topic. Unbelievers don't believe in it. Most Christians ignore it. Even the staunchest biblical diehards are often silent out of embarrassment. And hell, more than any other doctrine of the Bible, seems to be out of step with our times. The doctrine of hell is not politically correct. And many of our liberal institutions of higher learning, it is being phased out of their religious studies altogether as unacceptable. Gordon Kaufman of the Harvard Divinity School believes that we've gone through a transformation of ideas and an enlightening of our minds, and laughingly he said, I don't think that there can be any future for heaven and hell any longer. This morning, I am more interested in seeing what God's Word has to say about the doctrine of hell than I am what a spiritually decaying society believes. And if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you would turn to Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, and then we will look in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 says, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. 
But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. In Matthew chapter 25 and verses 41 and 46, we read this. Jesus is speaking here when he says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, and into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Martin Marty, an American church historian, observed, Hell has disappeared in our society and nobody has even noticed it. It's natural for people to want things to turn out well in the end, both in life and apparently afterwards, but many people today spend far more time planning for their weddings, planning for vacations, and certainly planning for their retirement than they do planning for their eternity. Humanity tends to believe that we are good enough to make it to the kingdom of God without having the necessary passport for the kingdom that we want to go to. Two weeks ago, I spoke about Sheol, which is the Hebrew word that describes hell and the grave and pit and how it is translated into Greek as Hades. There is a second word within the New Testament that is used quite often, especially in conversations with Jewish people that describes hell. And In fact, Christ used this often, and it's the term Gehenna. It's derived from the Hebrew Valley of Hinnom, which is found in the Old Testament in Joshua and 2 Kings and Nehemiah. The Valley of Hinnom is a valley that's outside of Jerusalem, and it's a place where Jews used to offer human sacrifices to pagan deities. Today you go there and it is now and has been for generations a garbage dump where the dumping uh, garbage of the city has been thrown and it breeds worms and maggots. And it is likely, because it's been like that since the time of Christ, why Christ referred to hell as a place in Mark 9, 48 where he said, where the worm does not die... And the fire is not quenched. So for the Jewish people, when Jesus was speaking to them of hell, it began to bring a vision to their mind of an unclean dump with all its smells and stench, a place where the burning trash never ends, and even the maggots that are bred in the filth there never die. And the Jewish people of the time understood this to be an appropriate description of the ultimate Gehenna. Researchers from the Pew Institute and Gallup conducted a survey and approximately 76% of American adults say that they believe in heaven defined as a place where people who have led good lives will be eternally rewarded. At the same time, only 58-60% to 60% of U.S. adults believe that there is a hell where people who have led bad lives and die without being sorry are eternally punished. Interesting enough, the Harris poll indicates that only 1% of the people polled believe that they will actually go to hell. 1%. From the poll, it indicates that the devil has done a great job of creating confusion 
and misconceptions about hell. If you have your bulletin, there is an outline there that would provide you a place if you would like to jot down some notes and an outline of what I want to speak about. But the first point this morning are about misconceptions about eternal punishment. Misconceptions about eternal punishment. The first misconception, and it's one that we probably have all heard at one time or another, is that a loving God would never send anyone to hell. Have any of you ever heard that? A loving God would never send anyone to hell. How do we reconcile the love and the mercy of God with the concept that there will be eternal punishment for those who choose to ignore his grace? There are liberal scholars that teach that Christ Jesus, who stressed the love of God, could never be party to a doctrine of hell. Yet significantly, 12 times that the word Gehenna is used in the New Testament, it's Jesus that uses it 11 of those times. In fact, if you study the word, Jesus spoke about hell and the coming punishment and judgment more than he talked about heaven. And if Jesus mentioned it that often, it must be something that we need to be aware of. We need to know that heaven is based on our relationship with God. If you were to travel around this country and find the biggest mansion in all of our country and go up to the front door and knock on the door and when the owner came, tell them, I just want you to know that I'm going to be moving in so I hope you have a place ready for me, they would likely look at you and tell you no. You're not coming in here. In fact, they probably would call the police. Yet, the mindset of Americans, for the most part, is that somehow we are good enough that at the end of time, we're going to go knock on the door of heaven and demand that God let us in because we deserve, because of your goodness, to enter in when there has been no relationship whatsoever. I will later speak as I get on into the series about what God's standard of good is and how far we fall short of that standard. But there are those that believe that a good God would never allow his wrath to be poured out on them. And I want you to know that the only way to escape it is relationship with God through Jesus Christ. A second misunderstanding or misconception of hell is that of annihilation. The traditional doctrine of hell is currently undergoing challenges, both from within and without the church. There are many who are standing in pulpits today that question the reality of hell outright, while there are others that take a portion of Scripture and as a result of that, draw the conclusions that hell will be a place of ultimate annihilation or a, cease, a ceasing of existence. There's a belief that the damned won't suffer eternally, but will instead at some point simply have their consciousness extinguished so that they will not have to experience an eternal punishment for their sin. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 25 that there will be people that will go away into eternal punishment. I want you to understand the preponderance of Scripture indicates to us 
that God has planned for those that ignore his great salvation. An endless and unending existence without him that is described to be as painful and tormenting and that it is irrevocable and unescapable without being sealed by the love and salvation of Jesus Christ. I can understand why many would prefer the idea of ultimate annihilation because when we begin to think about what it would be like to experience an eternal suffering in torment, it goes beyond our ability to comprehend because we are finite beings talking about an infinite time. We are paralleling the fact that we've got some that have gone on to heaven that are living in timelessness while we are yet living in time and our mind is captured by that. There were moments when I was preparing this message, I literally had to get up and just walk around because I could not conceive of an endless terror that would capture the soul of a lost individual. An annihilation is focused on what is best for the sinner, while God focuses on what is the payment that sinners must pay for ignoring the only way to get to heaven. And how much it cost the Father to send his Son, Jesus, for us. The object of the transgression must be taken into consideration as well. Whereas death may be a sufficient penalty here on earth for sins that are committed against humans, if you were to take someone's life in a premeditated way, it is possible that you would face a death penalty and we would see that as paying the ultimate price. It is not sufficient in eternity when your sins are committed against an infinitely good God. Another reason to reject annihilationism of the lost is that to believe that there would come a time when an individual cast into eternity would cease to exist would indicate to us that there would be a penalty that we could pay that could pay for our sins in full. That there would come a time when God said, that's good, that's enough because of the sins they've committed, that's enough time and punishment. Now they will be annihilated and cease to exist. And we know for a fact that Scripture indicates to us that there is no payment that you and I can pay to ultimately satisfy the guilt of one of our sins. There are those that believe that Annihilation will take place because they said at the second death there will be a casting of Hades into a lake of fire that's prepared for Satan and his devils. And they believe that at that, that there will be an annihilation take place. I want you to know that there is no place in Scripture, not one, where death is ever given as an indication of a ceasing of existence, but merely a doorway to a new existence. The third misconception that the punishment of hell doesn't fit the crime. Man's thought is this. Well, we all do evil. And there are some men and women that do really, really, really bad things. But no one has ever done anything that can justify an eternal torment. It would be like, in the minds of man, capital punishment for a traffic violation. Here's the issue. Man's problem from the beginning is that we've always underestimated the level of our guilt in sin. 
We've underestimated the power of sin, the permanence of sin, and the penalty of sin. We classify sins. Within our own lives we do this. Because we've all heard the term, it was just a little white lie. And we try to paint the sin with a color that looks pure, and because it was little and white, the sin could not have been very bad. And I say this with tremendous guilt, some of us speed. Let that sink in a minute. Some of you look at the speed limit as a suggestion. And we begin to create in our mind that why would exceeding the speed limit receive the same punishment as a mass murderer? Because we begin to base a scale of punishment on what we think is fair and on what we think is unfair. This is coming from the fact that we live in a land of laws and consequences. You speed on the highway, if you get caught, you pay a fine. Drive drunk and cause an accident, and you might lose your license for a couple of years. You smuggle or deal drugs, you might be in prison for 15 years. Capital murder, depending on the state in which you live, it might be life without parole, or you could pay the death penalty. In each of these cases, the punishment is meant to be a future deterrent to committing the crime, and also that there are levels of punishment that come with the crime. Now, we must confess that we do not know exactly how much punishment is enough for those who have sinned against God. We may think that we know what God is like, but we see through a gla glass darkly. We do not see clearly. We always give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, and we always will justify ourselves in light of the behavior of others to make sure that in his eyes we should receive a lighter sentence. Jonathan Edwards said, the reason that we find hell so offensive is because of our insensitivity to sin. We just don't think it's that bad. What if from God's viewpoint, the greatness of sin is determined by the greatness of the one against whom it is committed? Then the guilt of sin is infinite because it is a violation of the character of an infinite being. What if in the nature of God it's deemed that such infinite sins deserve an infinite penalty? A penalty that nobody can ever repay. Then we would understand that eternal punishment spent in agony and suffering is insufficient to make a full payment for the charge of an unforgiven sin leveled against us by a holy God against whom we have committed it. Oftentimes we say, well, this only affects me. Well, I only did this and it only affects them. Every sin we commit is committed against a holy God. If our concept of justice differs from God's, we can be quite sure that he will be unimpressed by our attempts to instruct him to see things from our point of view. No one is God's counselor. No one instructs our God as to what is right and wrong, and nobody corrects our God. He does not look to us for input on how to run his universe 
and our feeble thoughts on his justice will not sway him from the stated reality that he has that is to come in eternity for those who ignore the only way to escape just because we think he's being unreasonable. Hell exists. Unbelievers are eternally guilty. Bill Weiss, in his book, 23 Questions About Hell, lists five reasons why God cannot release someone from hell and five reasons why he would not be allowed to extinguish them once they are there. All five of them are based on Scripture. The first being this, we are saved by grace through faith. If there was to be an extinction in hell, it would require that God would have to change his word and that our salvation could come through time served rather than faith through his grace alone. Secondly, we are saved by faith and not by sight. Once an individual is cast into hell, it would not require faith to know both God and hell exist any longer. They would be experiencing it. And the scripture says it is impossible to please God without faith. Thirdly, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Time spent in hell cannot pay for our sins. Only the blood of Christ can do that. Fourthly, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment, it tells us in Hebrews 9. If God took somebody out of hell or extinguished them once they were there, it would constitute a second judgment, a changing of the mind of God, that enough is enough. The scripture indicates clearly that there is one death, and then following that, we will have one judgment. And at that judgment, everything will be final. Fifthly, man's soul is eternal. If he rejects Jesus as Lord and Savior, there is no other place for the soul to go. Jesus is the only way to heaven, and without him there is no hope. And so we will live eternally by the decisions we make right here. Dr. Erwin Lutzer said, The powerful lesson to be learned is that no human being's suffering can ever be a payment for their sin. If our suffering could erase even the most insignificant sin, then those in hell would be eventually freed, their debt would be paid, and they would after time be allowed into heaven. But all the human goodness and suffering from the beginning of time, if added together, could not cancel so much as a single little white lie in the eyes of God. That leads us to what are the characteristics of hell? What are the characteristics? In the first message of this series, I referred to Luke 16, when Jesus began to speak of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man who was in Hades, Lazarus who was at Abraham's side, and Christ points out to show that there are realistic characteristics in Hades. The rich man instantly was in torment. The poor man was in bliss. We also know that in Revelation, final following the final judgments of which will be future messages when we will talk about the white throne judgment for the unbeliever and the judgment seat of Christ for the believer, we find in Scripture that death and hell will be cast into a lake of fire. 
we are given reason to believe that whatever you may experience in Hades will only be intensified in the lake of fire. The first characteristic of hell is this. It is a place of torment for eternity. Revelation chapter 14, verses 10 and 11. He too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. For the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever, and there is no rest day and night. Let this sink in for a minute. Even us, when we are in our worst pain, find sleep and rest to be a respite. Scripture indicates time will be no more for eternity. There will be no sleep. There will be no respite. It will be eternal and constant. And the smoke of their torment, the burning of the resurrected body for this judgment will rise forever, never extinguished. One writer that I was reading this week and I need to preface this by saying, listen, as it relates to suicide, I want you to know that our God is a righteous judge and never makes a mistake. He knows things that we do not know and he sees things that we do not say. And having grown up in a background like many of you that heard that if anybody commits suicide, it's automatically going to hell, I believe that God is the better judge than we. Having said that, one of the writers that I was reading, speaking of the way things are today medically, said, there are those who are in the final stages of disease who today are looking for friends and doctors that will assist them in suicide, he said, and they will be utterly shocked to enter into an eternity where torment is greater than that they were experiencing in pain here. And there they will instantly recognize that they will no longer have the benefit of pain medication to dull the hurt. Regardless of what you are facing today, if you die without Christ, there's no medication. Luke 13, 28, in Jesus' own words, he states, there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. Now, I'm a Western fan, and I've seen enough of them to know that when those tough old men got shot, that what they did was they bit a stick while somebody dug the bullet out. That's the only thing that I can think of that gives me an idea of what it must be like to be in such pain that you scream and you're biting and the gnashing of teeth and the weeping that takes place will not only be because of the pain but will also be because of the regret. As they recognize all hope is gone. The second characteristic of hell is that it will be a place of abandonment. If heaven is a place full of everything that hell is not, then the human communication and interaction in hell will be impossible. By the way, next week I'm talking about heaven. It'll be much lighter. (laughs) 
There are those that say, I'm going to go to hell because I want to party with all my friends. A poll was given to high school students asking them if they would rather go without their smartphones and computers for a month or without new clothes for a year. It was almost unanimous that they would give up new clothes to remain connected. The startling part of this, according to the McCann Group, is this. 53% of people between the ages of 16 and 30 would give up their sense of smell to remain connected to technology. 53% would give up their sense of smell to hang on to their technology. No comfort in hell will be derived from the presence of others. Consumed with the torment of raging, unforgiven sin, those in hell will never find comfort or entertainment or connection again. A never-ending solitary confinement where there will be no one with whom you can commiserate about the terrible pain and terror you are experiencing. Third characteristic of hell, a place completely void of God's presence. Some question, why, why is hell so horrific? Because God's attributes are not present there. Think about that. Many do not realize that the good we all enjoy is from God. Good does not, apart, does not exist apart from him. James 1.17 states, For every good gift and every perfect gift, notice the term every, every, comes from above, comes down from the Father of lights. Everything we experience, whether you are a follower of Christ or not, that brings you joy and pleasure and a smile is because God's presence still dwells here through his Holy Spirit on this earth today. I've heard those that would say, ah, I'm going uh, to be a martyr. I'm going to wait, and after the Lord raptures his church, I'll just let them cut my head off. If you can't live for God with his Holy Spirit moving around now, how in the world do you think you'll have a chance when his spirit has been removed from this world? And hell will have less of his presence and his goodness. The Greek word hetomazazo is used in Matthew 25, 41 that describes God preparing Hell for the devil, it's also the same word that he uses to describe he's gone to prepare a place for those who believe in him. The significance of that is this. Hell has the fingerprints of God all over it, just like heaven. A place created by the hands of God for a specific purpose, just like he's gone to prepare a place for those who believe. But in God's preparation of hell, he removed all of his attributes. He has removed all of his goodness from that place of torment. Hell is dark because God is light. Hell will be death to all hope because God is life and hope. Hell is raw hatred because God is love. Hell will be without a strand of mercy because mercy of the Lord is found in the heavens. Hell will be constant sickness and disease with no hope of healing because the Lord God is our healer. Hell will be filled with constant fear and anxiety because God is the Prince of Peace. 
The good we experience is because God allows us to enjoy it while we are here on earth, according to Psalm 33, 5, which says, the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord and none of that will be present in hell. So if you're here today and you want nothing to do with God, there's a place that's being prepared that will have nothing to do with his goodness. His goodness and influence will be completely removed and all that will remain is the full strength wrath of a God. The fourth characteristic. It's a place of easy access but no exit. Matthew 7, 13 says, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Entering hell is easy. All you have to do is neglect Jesus Christ and the great salvation that he has provided for us. John 3.36 concludes with these words. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I want you to think about this verse for a moment because, number one, it fits well with the prophetic word that we had this morning about being a believer that obeys. Living life in the life of Christ. But notice this scripture. This also goes back to how can a loving good God send anyone to hell? Because it says the wrath of God remains on him. In other words, we are born into a sinful nature where the wrath of God is on us. And the only hope we have is when he intersected our eternal destination with the cross and with his blood. And those that receive that are removed from the road of wrath and put on the road of righteousness where we have a new home. And so it's not God sending anywhere. God is chasing you to interrupt your journey to hell so that he can remove the wrath from you. Lee Strobel wrote, what is the most heinous thing a person can do in this life? The worst thing a person can do is to mock and dishonor and refuse to love the person that we owe absolutely everything to, which is our creator, God himself. You have to understand that God is infinitely greater in his goodness and holiness and kindness and justice than anyone else. And to think that a person could go through their whole life constantly ignoring him, constantly mocking him by the way they choose to live without him, saying things like, I don't care what you created me to do on this earth. I could care less about your values, God. I don't care about your son's death for me. I'm going to ignore all of that and live the way I want to live. That is the ultimate sin. And the only punishment worthy of that is the ultimate punishment, which is everlasting separation from God. I want to read you a passage of Scripture from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. The wrath of God is being revealed from the heavens against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires and the hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not be done. They have become filled with all kinds of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Is there any more graphic a portrayal of the heart of men and women today than what we just read? And listen closely. You and I were described within that. We are not innocent of the evil that was listed within that verse. The Apostle Paul, who wrote that, one of the most finest educated men of his time, concluded after writing that list, and of sinners, I am the chiefest. That is a brutally honest description of the human heart. We are not good. We may think that we are good and we may think that we are worthy and we may think that we should escape all of this, but we in our heart are not good. If Jesus had not come to die in our place, we would all be in hell. All of us are already on the road there automatically. And God's reason for sending his son to earth was to get us off that road. Because in Romans 3.23 it says, For all of us have sinned and belong in that Romans chapter 1 list. And we've fallen short of the glory of God. Ravi Zacharias states, Man isn't just unethical. He's lost and dead. Now hear this. The biggest difference between Jesus Christ and ethical and moral teachers who have been deified by men is that these moralists came to make bad people good. But Jesus came to make dead people live. When I gave my life to Jesus Christ, it was not a bad man becoming a good man. I was a dying man who was going to live for a cause that was greater than me because of an intersection with the grace of Jesus Christ. 
Since we are all sinners, we cannot live in his perfect kingdom as we are. We must be able to put on ourselves and be clothed with his perfection, which Jesus died to give us. And so throughout our lives, God graciously gives us countless opportunities to choose him over sin. And this morning is one of those. He is patient enough with us this morning to keep his offer open for us today. I've lived long enough to know that you can plan to live for 70, 80, 90 years, but the Bible tells us in Psalm that my life is held in his hands. There have been many, and there may be many this morning that you said, I have grown up in church and I've heard this all my life. I want you to know that going to church does not write your name in the Lamb's book of life. It is a decision that you make personally and individually. You can't get there because your family's going there. You choose with your own lips and your own heart and your own mind. I choose to believe that Jesus died for me. I choose to believe that he removes his wrath from me and writes my name in the Lamb's book of life when I yield to him and I ask him to forgive me of my sin. And we use the term sin here. Not just character deficiencies. We are sinful people. Following Jesus isn't only about avoiding hell, but about being with him both now and forever. I can't wait to talk next week about what we're going to be doing in heaven. By the way, it's not an eternal church service for those of you that get bored really easy. But you do need to decide today what you're going to do with Jesus because as of this moment, you are now responsible for everything that you have just heard. Bow your heads if you would, please. In a moment, I'm going to give an invitation to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you have any doubt whatsoever in your heart as to your eternal destination, don't you dare let this opportunity pass you by. What I'm going to do in a moment is I'm going to ask that if you want to respond to a salvation call, that you will lift your eyes and you will look at me, and I'm going to say with you, I agree with you, sir, or I agree with you, ma'am. At the conclusion of this service, we're going to have people standing here at this altar to pray with you. And if you make that decision today, the easy thing is to lift your head and then run out the door. The hard thing is to say, this is not just an easy prayer I'm making. This is a life change. I'm moving from death to life. I'm going to become a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying a hell insurance prayer. I'm making a change in the direction of my life. So I'm going to start over here on the left and on my right. If you're here today and you would like to receive Jesus, just look at me and I will agree with you. Moving to the left center. Is this your day? Is this your moment? Yes, ma'am, I agree with you. Yes, sir, I agree with you. Are there others? Continuing on. Yes, ma'am, I agree with you. Are there others? 
moving all the way over to the far right, my far left. Yes, ma'am, I agree with you. Yes, sir, I agree with you. Looking into the overflow. Is this your moment this morning? Is this your moment? Yes, sir, I agree with you. Yes, sir, I agree with you. I'm going to ask that you would open your eyes and that all of you would stand with me, please. I was going to apologize for being longer this morning, but I'm not sorry, so. This is the Lord's day. We can give him a few extra minutes. If you lifted your eyes or if you were feeling the knocking on the door of your spirit this morning but did not raise your head but are under the convincing power of the Holy Spirit, then don't leave here today until you've been prayed with. I'm going to ask our altar workers and our deacons and their spouses, pastoral staff, if you'd please come and be prepared to minister because there were a number of people that today made a decision and they need to follow through with you. This may be the hardest message I have preached in all of my years of ministry. And I don't think I've ever had a Sunday where I preached a whole message on hell. But when I stand before him, I want to tell him I told you everything. That we are fully aware of the joys of heaven that is to come for the believer. But we are also fully aware of what will happen for those that ignore so great a salvation. Let me say this. Knowing what we know... And knowing that the vast majority of people that are in here today have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life and you know that you're secure in your salvation, don't you think that ought to make us a little more bold to tell those who are lost? And worry a little bit less about, about what they think of us? Well, what if they make fun of us? What difference is it going to make a hundred years from now? We've got a message to tell. And we don't have to beat them over the head with it. We can just say, here's your choices. And the door is open of God's grace. It won't always be open, but today the door of God's grace is open to you. So, Father, I pray for your people today. I thank you that you gave us the strength in our heart and our mind to be able to uphold the weightiness of your word today. There are some days we shout hallelujah and some days we sit quietly because your presence and your grace is so overwhelming to us. I pray for every individual that lifted up their eyes that today they would not walk out of these doors until they have solidified their decision by having somebody pray with them. This is not a game that we play with you so that someday we can say, yeah, I lifted up my eyes one Sunday. You demand that we become followers of you and that our life and our lifestyle corresponds with obedience to your word. And so, Lord, we're not getting off easy today. We're going to become followers today of Jesus Christ. Lord, our hearts are wicked and we know that, so we throw ourselves on your mercy and on your grace. I ask, Lord, that for those of us who absolutely know because we know and the witness of the Spirit in our heart is telling us that we belong to you, that you would grant to us the boldness of the Holy Spirit in the way that we live and in the words that we say in a decaying and dying world who no longer believes. Father, that your work would be done through us as we speak truth in love and graciousness. Now bless your people, I pray, as we go walking in the joy of the Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, and everyone said, amen.
I only gave you three minutes to greet earlier, the other two now. Feel free to greet one another. And if you need somebody to pray with you about something that's going on in your life today, do not leave here carrying the burdens that you're carrying today. There are people that will pray victory into your life. God bless you. Have a great day.